You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 3, Episode 5. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am Canadian Immigration Lawyer Mark Holthy, host of the podcast coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta. And I can tell you that today it actually is quite a beautiful day out there. Today is summer solstice, the longest day of the summer, and I am enjoying every ounce of it. Well, okay, maybe not every ounce, given the fact I'm sitting in my office and it's about quarter to 8 p.m. when I should be outside enjoying the nice weather, but I needed to get in here and wrap up this final little touches to the episode that I just finished recording uh, with an interview um, that I had with Christy Jones, who is an immigration lawyer practicing out of her firm in Toronto. Uh, We talked a little bit about visa processing, and uh, we will get to that interview in just a few minutes. Um, Today, folks, and I know I talk a lot about a lot of different things leading up to the interviews, but today as I sit here, pounding away, filling out application forms, um, I've got a couple C10s that, uh, that I'm trying to get wrapped up here for some clients, A couple of them are a little bit of a stretch, but we'll see. And those of you who have dealt with C10 significant benefit work permit applications, we're starting to do more and more of those. And fortunately, um, when you make a good pitch and you support your arguments, uh, whether it's at the port of entry, at the International Mobility Unit, um, they tend to be fairly well received. Now the consulate, that's a different story in the online process. Um, they can be a little tougher, as Christy alludes to when we get into her interview. But generally speaking, these types of, uh, of work permits are, um, I guess, a part of our life as business immigration lawyers, at least more and more. So I'm trying to pound out a few of those, um, make sure that I accentuate the highlights and, and really emphasize the significant benefit these fine workers are going to be uh, providing to not only their companies, but the wonderful world of Canada as well. And I guess that's the basis upon which we uh, we advocate for those. So as I sit here pounding away, doing these things, I think to myself, boy, have I gotten into the right area of practice. <laughs> and I think many of us feel that way after doing this for, I guess I'm just about 14 years now, it starts to get a little tedious over and over and over again. And uh, I guess that's the nature of any practice uh, within the area of the law where you really hone in on one area. You get really good at it. But at the same time, with a, a lack of variety, it can become a little bit, um, oh, ho-hum, I don't know, just a little boring at times. And it's nice to, to have something else that you can turn your mind to. And over the last while, I have not been pushing out these podcasts, podcast episodes as much. I've had a couple other things I've been pursuing. Um, but I can tell you that I absolutely love doing this. It gives my little old mind a chance to disconnect from the forms and from the, uh, you know, this crazy 
um, perfectionist mentality that we have to have when we're completing these forms because now the consequences and the stakes are massive. We miss one little thing. We forget one little uh, document we should have included or we insert uh, an answer or we fail to complete a form in the way we should and it gets returned and, and our clients are wondering why did we hire this person in the first place? So with the stakes so high, um, it can really be draining a lot more than it used to be anyways. And so I love this podcast. I am so grateful for the opportunity that I, I have to do it. It is my release. And obviously, I make tons and tons of money doing this. It's unbelievable the money that rolls in. You know, all the lawyers across the country who are thinking, well, why would I want to go on Mark's podcast? You know, he's just making all of this money from my efforts. You are so right. In fact, I think this year I cleared about a million dollars just doing the podcast alone with all the promotions and the advertising uh, rights and just everything associated with it. And then let alone the practice, you know, just, it's just been pouring in. <laughs> okay. That's my best attempt at sarcasm that I could ever, ever give. This folks is 100% a labor of love. And for any of you who think that I am lining my pocket somehow with these efforts, oh, you are sadly mistaken. This is purely uh, an effort in in trying to um, give back to uh, a country and to people and colleagues that are some of the best, best people out there. And I look at my colleagues, especially those involved with the Canadian Bar Association, and all that you guys give freely without any compensation whatsoever. And often we're slagged by the general populace because they don't know what we're doing. And yes, some lawyers are money grubbing and they're not very good at what they do. And their sole primary focus is to uh, line their pockets with, with dollars. And that's, that's the case. But if people had any idea how much pro bono work we do as lawyers, at least those of us who are trying to do it right, how much we give back, I'll tell you, my staff, if I brought them in here, they could, they, they'd probably um, chastise me uh, publicly for how often I have people come in for consults, um, applications that we do on a pro bono basis, just because I feel bad charging these people who may or may not be able to afford um, the, uh, the legal fees that I charge here at our firm. And, um, and, and that's the case. And, and you know what? The vast majority of people that I bring on are exactly like that who do this because we care about the people we represent. And internally, we just get some amazing sense of satisfaction at actually making a difference in people's lives. And so that's what drives our ship. And uh, I guess, like I said, uh, in, the, in the world, I do this so that people understand um, that us as Canadian immigration lawyers, we actually care. And so uh, we've got a lot of competition from the consultant ranks and, and from... Uh, even the the unscrupulous uh, crooked consultants, as they are labeled, um, who are trying to, you know, encroach in onto our um, area of immigration law and offer quasi, I wouldn't even call it quasi legal services. It's they're exploiting people and often they have no clue what they're doing. And so we're always seems like we're having to defend ourselves. But um, I was just listening to B.J. Caruso, our national chair of the um, our, our uh, Canadian Bar Association's National Immigration Section, and she was just mentioning how we really shouldn't apologize for, you know, for earning a living doing what we're doing, largely because of all of the other things that we do, giving back, 
and uh, I agree with with BJ 100%. Um, we do it because we we love it. All right, so there's my little thought and my my rant before we jump into my interview here uh, with Christy Jones. But um, I just want to thank all you guys for sticking with me, and I hope. Um, that this episode you'll enjoy. It's a little bit different. We are taking a case study approach and talking about some difficult situations and then how each of us would deal with it. And it's all on visa processing. So uh, all the different places you can file and everything from the, the the global skill strategy to you know the port of entry applications and trying to navigate online filing in the context of multiple different kinds of applications. So you'll see, we'll get into it here. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoy this, uh, this episode. And uh, without further ado, off to my interview with Christy Jones. Well, I am delighted to have Christy Jones join me here on the podcast today. Uh, Welcome, Christy. Thank you. Hello. Excellent. Well, I had a chance to listen to Christy give a, a presentation at our last Canadian Bar Association's National Immigration Section, and she was talking about visa office processing and global skills strategy and all these other things, and I thought... Um, I'm going to invite her to come on the podcast because I, <laughs> I loved her presentation. It was all about practical scenarios that we all face that we tear our hair out over and there doesn't seem to be a solution. And so I was, um, I, I found it very admirable, her attempts to pin down immigration on some actual answers to some of the more difficult scenarios. Um, attempt, I'll, I'll emphasize yeah. attempt. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) it's kind of about a 50 50 on whether or not we got actual answers to some of the difficult scenarios but um we thought it'd be fun to come on and just talk about them a little bit more uh sometimes when you're in these kind of a podcast scenarios we can elaborate and throw our own thoughts in and and the thing i love most about the uh, the canadian immigration podcast is we can say whatever we want so so Mm -hmm. it's great to have you to uh, to join uh, join me on the podcast christy um thanks very much I thought what I'd do is just give a little bit of background for the listeners. And uh, to start with, um, Christy has her own office, Jones Immigration Law in Toronto, where she has practiced since 2014. And that is a, a life, a, a professional, um, a professional uh, a form of practice that I am very familiar with myself, although I've now joined Stringham for years and years. I operated that way and I loved it. Um, uh, Christy was called to the Law Society of Ontario uh, just one year after myself in 2006, and she's had a wealth of experience in immigration. And I'm going to get into asking her exactly why she chose this crazy field, but we'll save that for a little bit. Um, but she had an opportunity to work with um, some of the larger boutique firms in Toronto and has just gained a, a, a ton of experience there that for sure is she's been able to um, to parlay into uh, running a very, very successful boutique immigration law firm um, as it stands right now. Um, Christy, I always get um, people to, to tell me a little bit more about themselves outside of the law. And uh, I don't know, Christy, if you want to share all the details, but um, she indicates here that she absolutely loves snowboarding, which uh, she, she does every opportunity possible, uh, as well as tennis, and recently has taken up soccer uh, to keep up with her two sons. Uh, well, <laughs> you shared a little bit with me about uh, something that happened just recently that uh, maybe might have you questioning whether soccer is the best option, but uh, <laughs> did you want to share something about that? 
Oh, sure. I, um, yeah, I tore my ACL, um, which was unfortunate because I was only four games into my soccer career. And it looks like probably that will be that. <laughs> it looked like it was going to be so much fun. I was having a great time. Um, but yeah, I, um, snowboarding might have to take a back seat this year, although I haven't given up on it. And, uh, and tennis, unfortunately, is out for the summer. So I guess it's the swimming pool for me. Yes, this summer. yes. It, <laughs> I and I was telling Christy, I just had uh, some surgery on my knee to repair a torn meniscus, and and my son recently tore his ACL. And it's amazing once you start to get these injuries, how many other people you see, you know, all around you that have gone through the same thing. So that is the part of of living an active, uh, healthy life. Injuries happen, and you roll with it and move on. And I found that it's introduced me actually to new sports and new activities that I hadn't otherwise considered, but for the injuries. So yeah, that's a glass half full attitude. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So you have spent a ton of time uh, doing immigration law and uh, obviously that's where your passion is. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's where your, your professional career is, is focused primarily but how did you get into it in the first place? We go through law school, we, we, we obtain our general LLBs. How did you end up uh, migrating towards immigration? Um, well, I wish I had a, uh, a noble story to impart, but I don't. Um, it's essentially, I, that's where I got hired. Um, I had uh, sent out a whole bunch of resumes because I had no idea what I wanted to do after law school. Um, not a clue, not even the remotest faintest idea. And uh, I kept hearing about um, make sure it's a good fit with the, both the practice and the firm. And I didn't really appreciate what that meant. Um, and uh, although my, my family was very supportive of me going to law school, I don't have any lawyers in the family. So um, the there wasn't a lot of practical advice that they, that they could impart um, with respect to this what is this fit thing? Um, so I just kind of threw my resume out everywhere and think, well, I don't know, something will, someone will bite. Um, and Howard Greenberg and uh, Yusra Siddiqui um, took a chance. And um, I, as soon as I started working, I understood, oh, that's what they mean by fit, because that's exactly where I should have been. Um, I spent some time out of outside of Canada before that and being able to speak with people from different cultures, uh, from, from a Canadian seat, um, was exactly where I, that's exactly where I should have been. And, uh, all, everything kind of fell into place after that. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm happy. This is where I should be. And the thought of doing insurance litigation after that, which I was, was well, sure. Why not? Insurance litigation sounds so, so I know <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> um, all of a sudden, I realized, no, actually, no, that was not at all what I should have done. I should be in immigration, and I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad uh, Howard and Yusra took a chance on me, and uh, I'll be here until I retire. I think absolutely. You know, I think most of the guests that I have on Christie say the exact same thing. You know, it wasn't <laughs> something that they'd you know originally decided or chosen to do, but it just fit. And, uh, you know, I served a mission for my church for two years in Portugal and, and had that opportunity to just live and become immersed in different cultures. And, and when I decided to go to law school, right off the bat, I thought, you know what, how can I use this language? You know, is there something that I can do? And, 
you know, the, the whole international business world and, and those kinds of things. I, I thought, well, maybe there's some opportunities there, but then I realized, well, not really, because everybody's speaking English anyways. Um, and then I thought, well, what about immigration? And, and as, as uh, luck would have it, I had the opportunity to work on the border as an officer. And then that parlayed nice to, um, you know, my, my time at Gowlings and, and Calgary getting started and, uh, kind of, um, uh, introducing immigration into the Calgary office of Gowlings. Although some wonderful lawyers such as BJ Caruso and, and, uh, Bill McGregor and, uh, were already in, in Toronto and Waterloo with Gowlings, but, uh, it was, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun and it was all driven by circumstance and, you know, just, I couldn't, st- you know, I, I spent a summer on the securities floor and, and that was that was enough for me to realize immigration was awesome. Yeah, so not a good fit. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, let's transition into our topic today, and that is visa office processing. And uh, like I said in the intro, you had um, taken some time to create some wonderful fact patterns and scenarios for your presentation. Uh, at our national um, CBA immigration conference. And we thought we'd pull out, um, Christy and I, some of the scenarios that we thought might be a little bit more interesting to elaborate on and uh, and then use them to guide us as we share some insight on this crazy world of, of consular processing, which, uh, you know, you, you, we, as a business immigration lawyers, we spend a lot of time dealing with the ports of entry and, and you get instant decisions and sometimes you don't like those instant decisions, but you can get things, you know, uh, turned around pretty quick if, if, uh, if that's a possibility uh, through, through the uh, border service officers. Um, but filing overseas, as everybody knows, can be a whole lot tougher. And, uh, and it's often, um, you know, something that if you have to do, you're going to put in a whole lot more work, at least in my perspective, filing uh, through a consular application than you may necessarily have to do through a port of entry. So, so why don't we jump into this? How's that sound? Sounds good. So it's so specific. It seems I, you know, for you and I, yes, it's what we do every day. I'm just imagining somebody Googling, Ooh, give me the hot topics on visa office processing. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure it is interesting to lots of people. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the things that we're talking about, too, we're going to focus primarily on work permits and things like that. But there's a little bit of inadmissibility tossed in and even the same principles when it comes to the interaction between visitors and study permits and work permits. There is uh, there, there's overlap and uh, the same basic foundation, uh, you know, aside from the general eligibility requirements for whatever you know application you're applying for. You know the the whole determination of of, uh, of intention and uh, ability to return and willingness and and all of that uh, all interlaces everything else that we're talking about within within this world of uh, consular processing. So, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, why don't we jump into the first scenario? So here here's the scenario. So this one is in the context of inadmissibility, criminal inadmissibility. So an employee is requiring a work permit and they have one DUI conviction uh, that occurred four years ago. And that person was denied entry to Canada. So they came to the port of entry and the border officer said, uh, so you're inadmissible. You're not eligible for rehab. Um, we're not going to help you out with the TRP, which they do have the authority to do. And I think in this circumstance, that's pretty cruel of them not to, but Mm -hmm. we'll leave it at that. 
um, and advise the, the person to go back to the visa office and apply for a TRP before attempting to re-enter. And uh, um, so the intended position in Canada um, renders him ineligible for expedited processing under the GSS. So what is your suggested approach? What do you, what do you think, Christy? Well, I mean, this actually happened and, uh, and to, to a client of mine. And uh, I was like you, I was quite surprised that he had such a problem at the port of entry. Um, and that just kind of goes to show the vast different, the vastly different uh, officers that you can encounter at the port of entry and how difficult it is to advise on like what to do when there's elements of, of risk associated with the situation. Um, this was at a big port of entry. Yeah, I was going to ask where it was. Yeah, it was a big one. Um, um, I believe it was Ottawa. Like mm -hmm. it was, wasn't Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, yeah. but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, in North Dakota yeah, land <laughs> you know, crossing. in yeah. the middle of the woods. No. Yeah. Um, and uh, he had previously been issued a TRP, you know, like five years ago. Um, and so uh, he had contacted me saying, oh, well, I was turned away at the border and um, now what do I do? So I, I suggested because he'd already been turned away, I didn't know what notes were put in, his syst in the system against his name. So maybe we should get a, an approval first. Um, so that meant applying online, all, no, no problem at all, but as you're probably aware, there's no mechanism to apply for no. a TRP online. Mm -hmm. You have no. to do that by post. So how do you sync those up? There's no guidance. And it, it kind of floors me that there's no set procedure, to be honest, because you're, the only alternative is to apply at the border. Right. But anything outside of a DUI is really too complicated for a, PU, for a port of entry application. I I think anyway, you know, I'm not going to send somebody with, with 10 drug charges yes. and an assault to the, to the poor board of entry officer. That's not fair. Yes. Um, or to the, the client either, <laughs> fair to the client. So the fact that there's no specific mechanism to address this scenario is I find kind of strange after so much time, but there you have it. Um, so what I just did was, uh, submit a work permit application and in the, one of the extra boxes entitled letter of explanation, I put in a full TRP application exactly. with, with, yeah. with fee, with the forms, with the photos, although they were digital, um, and, uh, you know, all the explanation and the equivalents, the police certificates, everything, the whole shebang in just that one, um, one letter of explanation field. Uh, now, in, in my case, they approved the work permit, and it was approved under the GSS. It was approved very quickly, but there was no reference whatsoever to, <laughs> to, the <TRP. laughs> to the TRP. There wasn't an acknowledgement. There wasn't a refusal. There wasn't an approval. It was just kind of like hands behind your back and do 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 and so. And he was chomping at the bit. He wanted to go back. He needed to work. His employer was saying, you know, can he go back? Can he go back? The client's waiting. Um, so. Uh, I said, hold off, you know, let me contact the program manager to which I got radio silence. You know, I followed up a few times, but in the program manager's defense, it probably didn't go to New York. It was in Vegreville somewhere because it was a GSS file. Um, and I got no joy from the web form. You know, one, it takes, you know, 30 days for a regular response to come. Yeah, but... it's, it's a complete, uh, sometimes it's almost a waste of time. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, so in the interim, you know, I explained the risk to the client and they decided, you know, we're just going to find somebody else. We're not going to send them to the border again. So they reassigned them to a, a different oh. uh, engagement. But it's so it's still we don't have a solution. An answer. Okay. I, an answer. Um, I, I think if the same situation arose, I'd do the same thing because I, what else yep. do you do? You, yeah. you, you wouldn't submit the TRP separately and, uh, and submit a work permit because the TRP is going to take three, six, eight months. There's no specific processing time for yeah. TRPs and there's no way for it to get linked up to the work permit. So I would still do the same thing. I mean, the work permit was approved and if he were to encounter a problem at the port of entry um, and he called me and I was able to speak to the officer, my argument would be, well, they had full disclosure of the issue of inadmissibility and they approved the work permit. You can't approve the work permit unless you've addressed the admissibility. So um, that would be my approach. That's what I told the client. And I still think that he'd be okay, you know, with the work permit approval. I was just going to give him like the complete TRP application that was submitted, evidence that it had been submitted along with the work permit approval. And what would I I can't imagine a port of entry, entry officer taking a really hard stance on on that situation. But they did to begin with in refusing him entry at first instance. Yes. So yeah. So you, you can never tell. And yep. what would you do? Would that, that would be Exactly what you what you did is exactly what I would have done. And yeah, the moment we got the work permit rep- um, approved and you know, if the TRP was silent, then we've done our due diligence. We've done everything that we can. We followed your instructions, officer. I would have I would have said you're free to travel. And take the TRP application with you again, just in case. And in my submission, I would very clearly identify that we have followed your instructions, officer. We've done everything you've asked us to do. Um, We're uncertain what the status is of the TRP. And because the person needs to travel, here you go. And if for whatever reason the TRP is not there, please issue it to them. And, um, you know, even before this whole world of GSS and everything, uh, if officers didn't feel like they wanted to issue the TRP for whatever reason, um, uh, and they, or, or for example, they did issue a TRP and said, if you have to come back, you go through a consulate, I would always do that. And if the person needed to travel sooner, even if there wasn't a decision yet made at the visa office, I would, you know, I would plead my case and say, we've tried to do everything you've asked us to do. Processing times are like six months, <laughs> whatever it is. And the person really needs to travel, please facilitate. And I never really had too much of an issue with it. And uh, it's interesting in this whole world of, of uh, DUIs, um, I worked on the Alberta-Montana border at actually the Carway Port of Entry. And in, in those days, and that was right when IRPA was put in place, 2002 is when I worked on the border, um, we would routinely uh, facilitate rehabilitation applications. So we would, you know, give the initial, uh, our initial, um, when we sent them for, you know, uh, for, uh, uh, for review, secondary review, we would give our initial opinion and, and, um, and we would let the person in and, um, and then they'd get a letter later on after it had received the, the proper authorization and approvals. And, um, we would do rehabs all the time. It was very common. We'd never do TRPs if the person was eligible for rehab and how the world has changed. Now they yeah. don't want to be bothered at all. Um, even though they have the authority to do it, they will routinely, if they do, issue a TRP, then, you know, they'll, even if the person is eligible for rehab, they'll issue the TRP and then kick them back and say, go apply at a consulate. So yeah, a hundred percent. Or they don't know. I mean, 
this is an anecdote. I don't know. If, I don't know if this is true or not. But my impression is that you know, in the summertime, there's a lot more travel and there's a lot more students or inexperienced port of entry officers, especially at the smaller crossings. That you know, as much as they would like to help, they just have no, no idea clear. what to do. Um, I had an experience at the port of entry not too long ago with a veterinarian driving to um, the interior BC mm-hmm. by a land crossing. And it was a, nothing could have been more straightforward. It was a NAFTA veterinarian. She was, we had evidence of her license in BC, her degree. Like it just seemed yeah. so cookie cutter, you know, yeah. Google NAFTA veterinarian. Yes. <laughs> it was all there. Um, but the poor port of entry officer held her for two hours, told her to come back. Cause he was like, I don't, I have no idea. Wow. <laughs> I have no idea what to do with you. And, uh, yeah, and I'm so trying to speak through with BC, them. Um, which, which crossing was she going through? Oh, which crossing was she going to? It was, uh, I can, I'm going to pull it up while you, while we talk sure, and sure, I sure, can tell sure. you. <laughs> yeah, we're always curious. And you know what? One of the most important aspects of our job as business, as business immigration lawyers is knowing, um, which ports to avoid and uh, which ones um, have the ability to to help us? And it's nothing against the ports of entry. You know, having worked um, on uh, you know at a smaller remote uh, port of entry myself, um, if a, an individual came with a C10 application or, or something like that, I, you know, my eyes would have glossed over too and said, "Oh, I can't help you. Go go to Coots or whatever." And so, you know, the officers just don't receive the same level of training that they used to. And when I was on the border, there was still the separation between immigration and Canada Customs and Revenue. And so it wasn't uh, the CBSA. And so I can only imagine how hard it is. And I've actually got a lot of compassion for the officers because they're expected to administer immigration, but yet they just do not receive the training that uh, that they really should have in order to feel confident in themselves in in you know, issuing work permits and doing things like that. So it's not, uh, yeah. not surprising at all that even something that to us seems very, very straightforward, the person probably any work permit, maybe they would, they would be wondering what to do. And what's, I, that's interesting to, to get your take as well, being in Alberta to see what your take is on um, the Calgary and Edmonton oh, airports as mm-hmm. port of entries versus uh, the rest of them in the country. Cause yeah. uh, here in Ontario, it's, it seems don't go to Calgary. Don't go to Edmonton. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just yeah. don't do it. Yeah. Fly to Vancouver first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. And, yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest. And you know, I, I know, you know, I know the officers sometimes the uh, BSOs, sometimes they listen to my podcast and things and they're always, they always find my take interesting and they're always um, <clears throat> willing to tell me when they don't agree. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's a, it's a fact. Um, it's more difficult sometimes to get work permits um, through Edmonton and Calgary and Coots, even the land crossings than it is in other provinces. And I routinely, if I have a choice, advise my clients to fly through either Vancouver or Toronto uh, versus through Calgary. And, um, you know, there's discretion with every officer, there's discretion with every port of entry. And my role as an immigration lawyer is to make sure that I give my, my clients the best chance of success. And when it comes to discretion, and we're not talking an issue of whether or not they're entitled, it's, it's more a factor of whether or not an officer's discretion is going to be used in such a fashion to accept my argument that they qualify versus not. And, um, 
And so I will do everything that I can to, to direct my clients to the best places. And because of that, I do, I do avoid, um, where possible. Although I've had some wonderful success in Calgary, I've had some wonderful mm-hmm. success in Edmonton when sometimes we just have to go through there. And, um, it's not always the case, but some of the worst stories ever in the history of uh, business immigration <laughs> have come out of those ports of entry. So obviously yes. you're going to do the best you can <laughs> to uh, shield your clients from that experience if possible. <laughs> Okay, so it's not just an Eastern bias then. It's not, and I think we created <laughs> okay. the bias, actually. I think it was us <laughs> who said, avoid, avoid. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, it's not just, you know, it's not like we're just trying to be, um, uh, I don't know how, deceptive or anything like that in our advice to our clients. The reality is um, that there is, a, there is a very, very clear distinction. And even, I should, I should qualify, even there's a, a cultural difference between Coots and Calgary. So the officers in Calgary tend to be more reasonable than the officers in Coots. And um, the land crossings, you know, they've got a lot more time on their hands to look through things and to think about things before they turn someone around in a vehicle. And in an airport, you know, someone's flying in and, and, um, their decisions have to be made quicker and yeah. Yeah. And ports of entry, um, land crossings don't see the same level of, you know, applications under the international mobility program, you know, like the, the airports do. And uh, they tend to see more LMIA based work permits and expect everybody to have LMIAs. So, yeah, so that's, it'd be interesting to create a, a, a database of people's experiences like TripAdvisor. <laughs> I actually considered that till I thought I might alienate all the officers on the border if I did that, um, but where, where people could share their experiences dealing with certain ports and, and kind of get a, a pulse on what's happening. So I haven't quite been daring enough to, to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it was Rooseville. Rooseville. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, and that's well, actually surprising because I know we do send a few things through there when we can't get through Coots. We'll, well, when we don't want to go through Coots or, or Carway, <laughs> we'll say keep on driving Kingsgate out that direction. And, and mm-hmm. so it, that, it is a little bit smaller port, but um, yeah, and it, you're right. Summers, there's, there's more, maybe there's terms or, or different positions just to handle the increased flow back and forth. And not all officers are created equal for sure. Yeah, I, I, and it all worked out. She's... She is a veterinarian now. It's all good. Wonderful. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, uh, it did surprise me. Anyway, all's oh. well that ends well. Perfect. Well, we hammered that one to death. All right. Let's... We did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's good we only chose four here because otherwise the podcast would be an hour and a half. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let's jump to the next one. Uh, so this is um, a GSS eligible application. Um, uh, is to be prepared under the intercompany transfer specialized knowledge um, category, but the the argument isn't terribly strong, so it's a little bit of a stretch. So the applicant is visa exempt, but we're just not sure whether or not an officer at a port of entry would agree that the specialized knowledge argument is actually you know how it's presented would fly. And um, just to pull back in the whole port of entry concept, specialized knowledge, we have found that. Calgary in particular, um, they tend to have a much more strict interpretation of what would be considered specialized knowledge versus, say, Toronto or Vancouver. So I rarely, if ever, will send a specialized knowledge into Calgary just because of that, you know, that that interpretation. So just a little side anecdote. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you decide applying at the POE is too risky. Should you apply online? 
to be processed under the GSS or submit the application to um, the International Mobility Working Unit for an opinion, the IMWU. So, Christy, what would you do in these circumstances? Um, well, be, since the introduction of the GSS, I'd probably, if it was GSS eligible, I'd probably go that route. Um, I am finding that the, the processing time is still pretty quick. Um, not two weeks, though. I don't know about, about you, but uh, the last one that I filed, it actually took closer to four. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, in theory, two to four weeks is still pretty good. Yeah. Um, and it is because all there's so many officers together in Vagerville, um, I just assume that they're going to be speaking about the files that they have together and exchanging ideas and that collective knowledge might result in a more consistent outcome. Um, with the IMWU officers, um, I, I, they're not in isolation, of course. There, there are offices there, but I don't know that the experience between practitioners across the country. Like some people love the IMWU, some people hate it. So what yeah. that says to me is that maybe decisions aren't as consistent as uh, as we want them to be. So I personally have had some good experiences with with the IMWU, um, especially as uh, with the C10 category. Um, and if uh, if I was going to be submitting a C10, I'd, I'd probably go IMWU over GSS because my experience with the with uh, C10 applications filed online hasn't been as as successful. So um, I think it kind of depends on on the category as well. But uh, I guess we were talking about intercompany transfer, so that's beside the point. For an intercompany transfer category, I'd probably go the GSS route, um, and for a C10, I'd go the IMWU route. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's interesting. If we were to poll our colleagues across the country, we'd probably be all over the map. And so there's a lot of preference and where our comfort is, and and really our own personal experiences. And all it takes is one bad experience to then kind of back away from one of those particular avenues. And so when I think about the international mobility um, working units, the IMUs, um, I rarely use them. And um, Largely, I guess it's just because I've had a lot of success at the ports of entry. Um, when I look at the the whole entire process, if I have a client who is very, very nervous um, and is, you know, maybe isn't as sophisticated when it comes to, you know, advocating on their own behalf at a port of entry when an officer is in front of them asking them questions, um, then yes, I agree. I would absolutely consider getting that initial opinion uh, to some extent through the MU. Um, in the context of more simpler, straightforward applications, um, uh, yeah, for sure, I would I would consider doing that. In our situation here, specialized knowledge, like I said, I find the IMWUs as well have a little bit more time to think about things. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. so personally... How specialized is it? Yeah, Not very. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This isn't rocket science and that's my, that's my standard. And so, yeah. um, so from my perspective, I've always had pretty good success in Toronto and Vancouver. So I will advise my clients to actually fly. And even if it's kind of out of the way a little bit, I'll have them, I'll have them enter through those ports of entry and from my perspective, I've never had a, a real bad experience doing that. And so I guess that's probably why my comfort level is pretty high. And so I tend to not file things as much through the EMUs or through GSS, actually, if they're eligible for port of entry, I try to encourage them and say, you know what, I think we're going to be fine here. Here's my cell number. If you have any issues, you know, let's just do that. You want them there now, right? Or do you want to wait two to four weeks through the GSS? And and so we tend to have that that kind of a discussion if the port of entry is available. And um, 
you know, if the argument for specialized knowledge is not as strong, well, you know, I guess it's a, it's a sliding scale in terms of that strength and uh, you just kind of do the best you can to uh, focus on the, you know, the, the, maybe the, the size of the organization and, and use other mm -hmm. strategies and techniques to, to emphasize, you know, really that there's a proprietary level of advanced knowledge. So um, that's, in my mind, that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah, that's a good point is taking into consideration the the client's ability to explain themselves at the port of entry and their level of sophistication and their language skills and uh, and the stance that the uh, that the employer takes as a whole with respect to uh, assumption of risk. Absolutely. And ensuring that the person, if they are flying through, that it's during regular business hours because there's nothing worse yeah. than not being able to provide documents because the company is, is closed. The office is closed. You know, for us, we tend to, well, just the nature of the beast. We're, we're pretty much on call 24 hours. And so, uh, but, but the biggest issue is when the company themselves can't provide whatever extra document an officer may require. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, flying during regular hours is a pretty, uh, pretty known strategy within our ranks. Yeah. That's another interesting question to figure out what you would constitute a um, a weak ICT versus one that you're like, oh yeah, the port of entry, no problem. And for for me, I would I start to question it when uh, um, we can't if they're coming to Canada for some reason other than we really need this person to work on a project. You know, it it often arises uh, for me that uh, somebody's status is. Um, expiring in the u.s and they yep. don't want to lose that person so yeah yeah um i mean that doesn't that doesn't really apply for in the um not so often in, in, with the poe versus visa office situation because a lot of people on h1b are not visa exempt so can't apply for a work permit at the port of entry yes, anyway yes, yes. but um uh, but uh, yeah, it often happens for, I consider it to, to be a, a fairly weak ICT application when we can't really say exactly why the Canadian entity needs them. They're going to be put on Canadian payroll, but they're not um, really, they want to keep their same U.S. team and kind of be working remotely from the Canadian office. They're yes. still certainly entering the Canadian labor market, but what is the specialized knowledge argument there? Um um, we've, we've made it and so far it's been successful without having specifically made reference to the fact that just as an organization, they want to keep them, which yes. I don't think is particularly weak. I just, what's been going, what's been, what I've been doing so far has worked. So I'm not going to change yes. it for the sake of experimentation, but, yeah. uh, um, I'm wondering what, what you do in that situation. Yeah. Do you just, do you really focus on the Canadian entity or do you just like stay silent on it? Or do you... Yeah, so right off the bat, for me, the starting point is how big and sophisticated is your company? Is this, is this a, a company that the officer would recognize? And if it is a larger entity like that, I find that the officers, their level of expectation kind of drops down a little bit. So if you have a big multinational that is well-recognized and the person is coming in, um, that's, a, that's one factor. It's an easier, I think it's an easier sell specialized knowledge when the entity is larger. And I know it shouldn't be that way, but it is. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is how much are they actually getting paid? And so if you're claiming that this person is super specialized, but yet they're maybe making 45, 50,000, mm, that's, you know, that, yeah, that, sure. that's going to impact on things a little bit. Um, and these are some of the intangibles that really don't really get to the heart of, of specialized because at the end of the day, us as counsel, our job is to advocate and it's to, 
you know, really emphasize? And uh, is there something idiosyncratic to the company, the way they do things? And, and uh, so when I'm, when I'm doing these, obviously we get a lot of situations just like that where there isn't necessarily at the beginning anything huge that we can point to that's super, super unique or proprietary per se. Um, but, uh, you know, when we, when we press our clients a little bit more and we really get down to what they're doing, um, yeah, there's usually something that we can hang our hat on, but, uh, yeah, but we never submit it without, without having something there for sure that, uh, can give yeah, an officer of a, a ground for, for trying to, uh, yeah, to, for accepting it. But it's amazing. Sometimes you see how fast they are, you know, sometimes the work permits are adjudicated really quick and, you know, I, I'm not even sure how, how thorough uh, an examination of the materials, but we make sure everything's in there. And if the officer feels they need to look at it, then that's great. If not, then that's fine. And I just spoke with an, uh, another colleague here this morning. He was talking about the fact that uh, they'd submitted a nice package and the officer said, well, all this other stuff to the client is, 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 is useless. It's not worth anything. All I need is this, this, and this. <laughs> And so <laughs> that's so, fine. Sure. Exactly. You take whatever you need. Yeah. Just give us a work permit. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm just trying to think of an example where I would um, go the GSS route rather than a POE. I'm just like, I, I trying to go back and think, well, when was a time that I did that? Um, yeah. And I think, I think I did have uh, one client from, from Japan who had only been with a company for a year, was relatively new in their career, um, was making about 80000 a year. Um, I thought that it was strong enough to go at the at the port of entry through Vancouver. Um, I mm -hmm. saw I there was a, a distinct reason why the person was being uh, transferred, and I, I felt like I could hang my hat on that. Um, but in speaking, it was a client that was, I mean, educated and sophisticated. English was fine, just very nervous. And, you know, was calling me every day saying, well, are you sure it's strong enough? Are you sure it's strong enough? And I kept saying, well, I, I do. I mean, here's what's not strong about it. And here's how we're going to address it. Um, and, but he said, well, what happens if they're just going to put me on a flight? I'm going to lose my job. And I was like, you know what? We're just going to file online, you know, because yeah. I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want you to to stress for 10 hours on a flight, um, wondering what to do and then be a, be a total mess when you arrive at the, at the, at the airplane, at the airport, sorry. And then, um, if it doesn't work out, think, ah, but you told me it was <laughs> like, you know what? I'm not that we're going to go through the, through the, uh, through the visa office and it all worked out fine and everyone was happier. Huh. And you know what? Sometimes that's what we have to do. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about it all the time about every situation being different and unique. And, um, just recently we had one of our clients who we started a big process with them and then they kind of slowed down. And then, you know, we basically completed all the packages, but then the workers didn't tra travel. And, um, and then the HR person says, <clears throat> says to us, well, can you give us a copy of, of, of everything that you've got so that we can see kind of how these things work in the future? And so I made sure to send them an email <laughs> saying, okay, understand this was prepared for the purposes of this particular project with these workers. And uh, please don't just blindly use this as a precedent if you're going to plan on doing this mm -hmm. yourself in the future. And uh, yeah, there's so many different aspects to it. And even within ports of entry, right? You may think, hey, this port of entry is wonderful. Well, it could be, could, it could come down to the actual officer that you get. 
And so even within the, the ports of entry, there might be a culture overall, but there's, you know, every officer has their own discretion and Hey, if they're having a bad day, <laughs> sometimes, we all have them. sometimes clients <laughs> suffer. They sure yep. do. All right. Okay. Let's jump to our next uh, question. So in this case, it's, it's kind of a, a medical situation here. That's uh, uh, that's coupled with a work permit. So um, the applicant, uh, has a work permit approved under the GSS, arrives at the port of entry. The work permit is issued indicating that a medical exam is required within 30 days. However, the applicant had not resided in a designated country and there was no medical conducted um, toward, uh, you know, in furtherance of the work permit approval. So I'm assuming this is one of yours. How did you deal with it? Um, yeah, this, I, this one I put in just to, uh, to vent a little bit because I get frustrated mm -hmm. that uh, when IRCC makes mistakes that clients have to suffer, suffer the consequences, yeah. uh, both financially and with respect to time and uncertainty. Um, in this case, you know, it was, I, I, I can only imagine that it was uh, just a, an error, an innocent error, but on the part of the port of entry officer where that remark was included on, on her work permit. But, but yeah, it shouldn't have been. She wasn't listed. She had not lived in a designated country and was not going to be working with children or in a hospital or anything. So there was no reason for the remark to be there. But it's something that you have to deal with. You can't just leave it there, even though it was wrong, because it could have it could impact um, work permit extensions. So um, I submitted a, uh, you know, I asked for the work permit to be amended just through, you know, the regular, the, through the process of uh, error on your work permit, asked for it to be amended. And IRCC came back and said, no, we will only, we will only make amendments if there's like clerical errors, if there's a, the birth date's wrong, if there's um, a typo in the spelling of the name compared to the passport, but anything that um, implies that there was a, a decision or a judgment made, you have to apply for a new work permit. So we did, but you know, it, it's our time. It was certainly, we didn't charge full amount, but it still takes time for us to do it. So somebody's paying for it, you know, yes. in, in that respect. Yep. Um, and then there's the, a new, um, the filing fee and the courier fee, or I guess it's online, so no courier yep. fee, but yep. the, the filing fee. And then it takes a month where, you know, the, the person doesn't know if they have the right work permit or not. It's like, it's, it's a preoccupation and it's not a huge preoccupation, but I still, it's, it still gets my goat that, that it's the client that has to deal with that when it's not their fault to begin with. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I, I think there should be some kind of mechanism that IRCC implements to, to be able to address errors. Yes. It's, it's really frustrating uh, because it does is there's, there is cost, there's delay, and there's inconvenience for people. And okay, it was completely, you know, they, they had no control over over that, and it was just wrong. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know, IRCC, if you're listening, I don't know, with all the myriad of issues that you, that they're dealing with, a dedicated channel to fix mistakes because everyone makes them. It's like I, no, no one expects people Perfection. to not make mistakes. Mm, yeah. yeah, you know, it's but. Uh, it, addressing them or taking responsibility for them is something that really should happen. I agree. Grown up, that's what grown ups do. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> All right. Okay. The last one that we're going to talk today is um, one that also relates to GSS, uh, but the issue of being able to come in for short term work assignments without need for a work permit. 
and uh, how we deal with this, how we track it. And so an applicant who's eligible for a work permit exemption under the GSS is not issued a visitor record at the port of entry upon arrival. So, you know, there's limitations to how long they can, uh, you know, 15 or 30 days uh, for the work permit exemption. Um, but there's no rac record of it, at least not in terms of the individual themselves um, that they can, you know, have with them. So how do you deal with that situation? Um, well, I just advise on the assumption that it has been um, noted on IRCC's side of the that they entered under the GSS exemption. But um, I, I, it kind of floors me that there isn't something more um, structural in place uh, that IRCC has implemented in introducing the GSS um, because it's, I mean, it's a brand new program. Um, and they have all these tools to, for tracking and compliance, why there wouldn't be something a little bit more transparent to find out how somebody entered the, the country. Because the, the problem is then it, it puts, you know, advising the client, like the, assessing how the uh, port of entry officer permitted them entry on, on us. And that's not like we can say how it likely happened, how we would have done it, because we understand what the laws are. But and like as we all know, a, a border services officer can permit somebody entry for, however they want. Exactly. And if they're they, if they've been permitted entry, they could the officer said, no, I don't really think you're working. Come on in as a business visitor. Yeah. Or exactly. we don't we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. We weren't there to see what was presented. So maybe they said, well, I'm going to see my 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 daughter-in-law as she turns 30, um, but I'm also going to visit a client. So maybe they just end, let them enter as a visitor. And that none of that has any impact on the 15 or 30 day maximum. They could even have said, you know, I'm going to see a client. And the officer said, yeah, whatever. Still come in as a visitor. You know, yes. it's unlikely, but it, it's, it still could have happened. So yes. to, to for us, for as lawyers to say to clients, well, you came in and you worked 10 days ago, but you've got nothing from IRCC to show for that. And, and, uh, and now you need to come again. I mean, like, sure. Err on the side of caution. Don't take advantage of it. But why not? You know, yeah. like there's, yeah. <laughs> there's, that's, it's an, it's a silly burden to put on us because we don't, it, it's not, there's no, certainly no consistency going to be yeah. applied in that, in that yeah. situation. So. Yeah. And you, and you know, over the years, uh, how many times we have come to the airport and this is pre job offer registration days. So where we would prepare a package, we'd send a person to the airport with a work permit request and the officer would say, no, you don't need a work permit. You can come in as a business visitor. Yeah. And that would happen a lot, quite frequently. So now we're mm -hmm. in the situation where... Oh, those we, lawyers taking uh, all your money. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just preparing something you don't even need. And now with, yeah. you know, with the whole job offer registration, all of that, you know, th there, there's a little bit more of uh, acceptance of, okay, yeah, they probably need a work permit. But, um, but when it comes to this GSS and these sh short-term entries, um, you're right we're now faced with a situation where we think that they, you know, this would be something that would fall under that exemption and that it is considered to be work in our mind, but an officer may see otherwise. And so if we're advising our clients after they go in and the officer doesn't give them anything and doesn't even acknowledge or, you know, address the fact that it's under GSS, the entry, um, after they come back, it's not easy to advise. So do you say, no. well, because I thought the original should have been under GSS and the officer didn't do anything, you've actually used it up? 
Or do you take the position and say, well, you know, we're not trying to be cute here. We're not trying to be underhanded or anything. You know, if the border officer didn't feel like, you know, they, that you should have been issued a visitor record or that that entry should have been tracked, then maybe they didn't feel it was work. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to leave that up to the listeners to decide how they want to proceed with that, because obviously every situation is 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 not clear cut. And um, if I'm advising a client that they really need to go through GSS, in most cases for me, I'm going to be pretty solid with, yeah, the officer made a mistake and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to just take advantage of that. You've used it up. That's usually what my advice yeah. is. I tend to be much more yeah. conservative that way. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, you know, there may be other people that take another position and I don't think they're wrong for doing that. Yeah. And it seems illogical when there's a clear way to do it, just issue the visitor record, you know, like it, with the fact that they use the, the, the officer may issue a visitor record language, like why just make them do it. And then there's no uncertainty for the, for the next officer. Yes. It makes things very clear and uh, there's, there's uh, uh, far less ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, this has been great. I, I, uh, this, this discussion has been kind of fun. It's been a while <laughs> since I've had just a, a discussion about scenarios. And, and I think there are, um, uh, the, you know, there's, there's probably 5,000 other situations where uh, our listeners are, are wondering, boy, how would, I wonder how they deal with these things. So one thing I'm going to say, and this isn't something I've done in the past, but if people have certain situations or scenarios that they're kind of struggling with and not sure what to do, um, don't hesitate to send me an email uh, to mholthe, M-H-O-L-T-H-E, at stringham.ca. That's S-T-R-I-N-G-A-M.ca. And I can pull these together and we can invite um, um, we can invite Christy back on to, to talk some more about some of the other issues that people are facing. I think it would be kind of fun and useful. Um, these podcasts are meant to be super practical. And, um, you know, I, I, I look at uh, Stephen Murins and, and, uh, and his crew out there uh, who have the Borderlines podcast, which uh, tends to be a little bit more, um, I don't know if theoretical is the right discussion, but they tend to talk more policy and, and that's really cool. But this one's meant to help practitioners. And so uh, if you have a question that you think would be interesting and, and one that could uh, lead to another podcast, don't hesitate to send me an email and uh, that, would, that would be great. Well, um, any other tips or strategies or practical suggestions that you think, hey, you know, when you're doing these online filing, um, be aware of this? Or is there anything that you'd like to leave kind of as a final passing thought with the with the listeners, Christy? Uh, hmm, let me think. Um, it's I kind think of, kind I mean, of an open ended question. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's very specific. This is so very small, but, yep, yep. uh, the, my takeaway from that panel at the CBA conference with her, with CBA, sorry, with IRCC was, uh, was the web form when you're following up about GSS applications. Um, when you're the, on the initial screen, when it asks you, is this an inside or outside Canada application? Uh, even though it is an outside application for GSS, you tick off no. Um, and only then, if you take off no, does it get triaged to the GSS officers in Vagerville. Otherwise, it goes into the international um, web form world, and it doesn't necessarily get seen by anyone at the GSS. That's great. That actually is a phenomenal tip. There you go. See, those of you who wrote this this, <laughs> this episode out to the very end got just an awesome little nugget there. So that's a great tip. And um uh, I don't think I even realized that. I th- I'm sure you yeah. guys talked about it in the, the panel, but it, I must have just glossed over that. That's really good. That's a great suggestion. 
Excellent. There well, well, now that people have had a chance to listen, uh, listen to you, Christy, and uh, they they realize, and and we've got counsel, we've got other lawyers, consultants, a whole bunch of people that listen to these podcasts, including companies and 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 businesses, and and if you have. Um, uh, if some people are thinking, boy, I want to hire Christy and uh, to help me in my company and dealing with this whole GSS, which I didn't even know existed, um, how can they reach you? What's the best way of them getting in contact with you? Uh, probably by email, um, and that would be cjones at jonesimmigrationlaw.com. Perfect. Okay. So cjones at jonesimmigrationlaw.com. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me, Christy. I really appreciate it. And uh, you take care. Thanks very much for having me. It's been very much, a lot of fun. <laughs> awesome. See you later. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that conversation with Christy. You know, we could have gone on forever and ever. And we had a number of scenarios that uh, Christy had originally addressed in her presentation uh, at our National Canadian Bar Association in Ottawa earlier this year. We had a number of them uh, that we could have expanded further on and talked about. But just the four that we chose, I think, covered a big broad, uh, a, a large breadth of, of different topics. And Hopefully you guys got something out of it. Obviously, this is our take and other people may <clears throat> may have other ways of approaching it or even better ways. And that's that's totally cool. At the end of the day, each of us has our, comforts, our comfort areas. And as I alluded to in uh, my discussion with, um, with Christy, uh, you know, sometimes all it takes is one bad experience through one of those avenues, whether you file an application through the International Mobility um, Worker Unit, the IMWU, uh, and, and get it refused or whether you file a consular application through GSS and, uh, and have a bad experience doing that. And then you face the reality of, of trying to figure out with your next client, whether you should go back to the well again and, and test it when it didn't work out. So I know for me, I've had positive experiences with the ports of entry. And I think, um, that's probably why I go back there so much because I'm comfortable and I'm familiar with them, especially having worked, um, uh, for a summer on the border. As a, as a border officer, I have a little bit more of a comfort zone. But very clearly, not all ports of entry are, are created equally, and we did discuss that as well. All right, I do wanted to remind everyone that um, in in that that interview with with um, Christy, I had indicated if you guys have some different scenarios or different topics that you want to cover, don't hesitate to send me an email to uh, my work email, which is mholthy at stringham.ca. M-H-O-L-T-H-E at S-T-R-I-N-G-A-M dot C-A and uh, let me know what you think. We'd love to, um, well, personally, I'd love to bring on other people and talk about um, difficult areas. This is a practical podcast. This is all about Canadian immigration law policy and most importantly, practice. So um, yeah, so don't hesitate to send those my way. Uh, You can always listen on iTunes if you're not already connected and don't hesitate to leave a review. Uh, those reviews help to drive up the podcast and, and get it a little bit more noticed, which is great. The more people I can benefit, the better it is. All right. I think I've come to the end of this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate your support. <clears throat> and uh, as we go forward, I wish you guys all the best in this crazy world uh, that we're all navigating. <clears throat> and as you can see, my voice is just about gone here, too. So that's a clear sign that it's time to shut things down. So good luck, guys, as you uh, navigate this world of immigration, Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Take care. Oh, Canada, great.
Yeah.